Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Joe Manoff. How are you, Joe? Hi, Danny. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm excited to be talking with you this week about a couple of different things. First, we're going to talk about the diverging fortunes of Pandora and De Beers. Both jewelry companies both had um, earnings this week and very different results. And so we'll go into the difference there and kind of maybe what's driving some stuff going on in the jewelry space. Um, then we're going to talk about the CFDA awards, which were this week, uh, which had some fun looks in the crowd and also some cool winners. Um, we'll talk about some stuff from there. And then finally, we're going to talk about the Real Real, which gave an update on their quest for profitability this week, um, which was pretty positive for them. So that's good Good to hear. Okay, let's start by talking about Pandora and De Beers. Um, both companies reported their earnings this week, and I think there's an interesting point of comparison to be made between them. Um, De Beers, uh, they both are in the jewelry space. De Beers is kind of a raw diamond manufacturer um, who sells to retailers. Pandora is a, a jeweler, and also they are a retailer as well. Um, they both reported earnings this week. Uh, De Beers had an interesting kind of result. So they sell to their buyers, which they call site holders, 10 times a year. And each period, each of those 10 periods is called a cycle. I think it lasts like a little more than a month. Um, so in the last cycle, which is like a month and a half, they sold $80 million worth of diamonds. Um, but in the previous cycle, uh, they had sold $200 million. So more than half, more than 50% drop. And then in the same period as this $80 million cycle this year, the same cycle last year was $450 million worth of diamonds. Um, so that is a pretty humongous drop off from, from them. Um, they also do something where they, uh, usually don't allow their the buyers to return or refuse to buy. I mean, you can always refuse to buy, but it's they kind of have a system where if a retailer or a jeweler doesn't want to buy the same amount of diamonds, if they want to reduce their uh, the amount of diamonds that they buy from De Beers, then that usually impacts how many how much supply they can get from De Beers in the future. So they kind of De Beers holds a little bit of leverage over these buyers, and but this period. They have been a lot more lax about letting those buyers refuse to buy diamonds outright or to return some of the diamonds that they've bought, I think, as an, an acknowledgement that things are kind of rough for the company. So we could get into Pandora and the comparison there uh, in a minute, but I wanted to start just by talking about De Beers. Um, I don't know, Jill, do you have any thoughts on why their their diamond volume that they're moving is so so much lower this last cycle than it was at the same time last year? I mean, people aren't spending money, ah, but um, I was more one. so focused on um, the first half of the year. Um, they, I think they came out with the first half report in August and they were referencing weaker customer demand, lower average selling price because lower value diamonds were selling and also um, increased expenses, putting a lot of money into mining diamonds and new opportunities there. And so they're spending more to to get the diamonds. Nobody's buying the diamonds. And so, um, yeah, their margins were not great. Um, and that's, I, I think that sums it up. I mean, um, and when it's talking about lower value diamonds, people are comparing prices to lab grown diamonds, which we're going to get into. Um, but it'll be interesting if they continue to keep spending, there's a surplus of diamonds is the word on the street. Um, natural diamonds. So uh, I think it's all the, all the elements. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. Like we're gonna talk about lab-grown diamonds, but I don't think that's the only factor here. Um, like you said, people are just spending less money in general. Um, and But lab-grown diamonds do play into that because 
diamonds are kind of, a, they're, they're not a necessity really, but like if you're gonna get engaged, you're probably gonna get a diamond. Most people probably will. Um, and if you're cutting costs, you'll probably get a lab-grown diamond instead of a quote-unquote natural diamond. But anyway, let's talk about Pandora. So Pandora kind of had the opposite uh, result. They're doing very well. Their revenue grew 11% in the last quarter, almost $800 million in the last three months, um, which is a pretty big deal. Um, they've been putting a lot of money into advertising, into earned media and all that. I actually just spoke with, uh, oh, can I give a preview of our Glossy 50? Are we allowed to... Let's sneak Talk peek for our listeners. Hey, Perk, Glossy 50 is coming. So sneak peek of our Glossy 50 this year is that one of the inductees is Mary Carmen Gasco-Buisson from uh, Pandora. She's their chief marketing officer. And I talked to her uh, a couple of weeks ago about how much they have spent uh, and, and how much work they've put into a new kind of advertising campaign. They've really been blitzing various media platforms. They had a bunch of celebrities involved um, you know, new ambassadors, kind of uh, at the same time as a lot of the, there's a group called the Natural Diamond Council, which includes De Beers and a bunch of others have also been putting a bunch of money into kind of a, a media campaign to get people to not buy lab-grown diamonds. And, and Pandora is kind of the opposite. They only do lab-grown diamonds. Um, so I think it, it would be easy to look at, you know, De Beers dropping a lot and Pandora going up and just be like, lab-grown diamonds are are the key factor here. But I think you're right. It's not just that. I think the the economy kind of being in a bad state and people spending less money is contributing. And if that were to suddenly reverse, um, I'm sure there are people who would go for a natural diamond uh, over a lab-grown. I personally think that you should go with lab-grown, but that's just my opinion. But I, I think that, you know, lab-grown is not the only factor here. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would agree. They're doing a lot of things right. I mean, hitting at the right time with this Pamela Anderson campaign. Pamela Anderson is it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Get her in there. They they referenced a launch metrics um, stat in their earnings report that they've had a 60% increase in average media impact value for the first nine months of the year. Um, so they're, they're more buzzy. I feel like they've had a glow up in recent years. Like I always thought of Pandora as being like, um, these bracelets that older women stack up their arm, uh, their arm, and you get your mom a different charm for each holiday. And there are these charm bracelets, and they still do that. They do um, various jewelry items with different, like they're stackable. There are charms you can personalize them, and I think that's a big part of the business. That that business increased seven percent in the quarter. Mm -hmm. But um, they only recently actually launched lab-grown diamonds in the States in 2022 after doing a trial run in the UK the year before. Um, so they, there was like 14% increase in their timeless jewelry and lab-grown diamond collections, 14%, but it was kind of starting from a low base. So that didn't really carry the company in my eyes um, from what I can see. Um, but yeah, I mean, good for them. They're doing things right. There was, there was also a reference of a TikTok trend, which I kind of love. I mentioned to the team that the TikTok promise ring trend helped them out in terms of their... Oh, um, I haven't seen that. I know, their timeless category. And I searched it and there are... Um, people are exchanging promise rings out there for whatever that wow. means. I had a promise ring and I'm not married to the boy. <laughs> wow, so that promise was broken. It oh. was broken. <laughs> I might still so have the ring. <laughs> I do, it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> you should see what he's up to. 
Um, anyway, <laughs> but so when I when I talked with Mary, I mean, that was one of the things she told me was obviously lab grown diamonds is a big push for them. They're putting a lot of money behind advertising it. But you're right, it's it's still pretty new. Um, and the charm bracelets are still their their thing. That's like their most iconic product. And she told me that their their kind of main focus now is devising what what will be their iconic product in diamonds. Like what they're they're still kind of working that out. I think they've got a lot of different types of jewelry you can buy with lab grown diamonds right now. And and I think they're still um yeah, they're still working on figuring out what's going to be that flagship product within that space. They've definitely made a strong commitment to only lab grown diamonds, but as for like the actual product kind of um catalog, I think there's going to be more experimentation. But yeah, you're right. They definitely have had a, a glow up. I mean they're they're doing really well. They're huge. Um they've been around since like the 80s, I think. So um but as the kind of lab-grown sector of diamonds becomes more common, more popular, more a lot more people are understanding it, I think they're kind of in a good position to be at the forefront of that. And I think that's smart of them to just fully commit to only lab-grown, you know? Yeah. And speaking to consumer habits um, and kind of probably to the outrage of the the diamond industry, but they call themselves a brand for everybody. And their thing is, yeah, appealing to the masses. They also had a great stat that they're the most searched uh, jewelry brand on Google and kind of beating the next number two by, I don't know, three times the searches per month or something bananas. So um, anyway, they're appealing to to everyone. They're doing their thing. Yeah. Uh, cool. Let's talk about the CFDA awards now, which I always enjoy. Um checking out who won and seeing what people wore and stuff, just because I think it's a it's a good glimpse at kind of what brands other designers are into and who they think is kind of worthy of of praise. Um, the the three kind of big winners were uh, Willie Chavaria for Best Menswear Designer, um, Catherine Holstein from Kate for Women's Wear, and then The Row for Best Accessories Designer, um, and the Olsen Twins, who I heard were not there at the event. Um, but... I think they've won. They've won several times uh, for that award and and others. And also, Catherine Holstein. This is her second year in a row winning for best women's wear. So two repeat, yeah, two repeat winners. Willie Chavaria, I think it was his first win at the CFDA Awards, but he also just won. I think designer of the year at the Latin Fashion Awards, also like this week or last week. Um, so it's no one who was like super unknown or anything, but I think all three are are great picks. Um, and I've got thoughts on all three, but how about you go first, Joe? What, what, do, you, what do you think of the, the awards and who they picked and all that? Well, I would say, um, I mean, I have the pleasure. I am, this is, I'm such, I feel so honored that I get to do that, but there are like 1,500 CFDA members, including fashion editors, retailers, stylists, that get to vote on this thing. And full disclosure, I get to vote. And so like, you know, the I didn't first, know that. I didn't know you get to vote. That's cool. Yeah. I always put a little check and put it on my Instagram stories after I've done it. But like you, it's very open. Like, who would you pick this year? Fill in the blanks. And then second round, it's like, here are the, the finalists based on everybody's votes. Who do you pick? And so- Anyway, sometimes I've, you know. How, how many finalists do they narrow it down to? Uh, I actually like pulled up the, yeah, I pulled up the finalists. There are one, two, three, four, like five, six, five, five, I think, um, five. So yeah, it was interesting to see who won and who, who these guys beat out. For instance, um, Willie in the, in the menswear category, um, 
I don't want to give away our glossy 50. Anyway, I was talking to somebody <laughs> else for a glossy 50 who's nominated. I'll just say it. Um, Colin, Colin Delane from um, Kids Super. And um, oh, he was just like, that was his like, he was so stoked to be nominated. He was just like, that was a made it moment. Um, but yeah, he lost out to Willie. But um, the whole idea of this, of these awards is to, they say, recognize the work of those who champion creativity, one, and then serve as ambassadors for American fashion. Um, you know, I think that Willie, he kind of puts this romantic um, sexy vibe to menswear, like men can wear a crop top. And I think that the emerging designer of the year, um, ooh, Rachel Scott of, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Diatima, um, she does an amazing thing with crochet and it's um, with artisans in Jamaica and it's a New York-based, New York and Jamaica-based, Jamaican-based brand. Um, and it's sustainable. I, I had to do a little research. I didn't know a lot about it, um, but it does scream kind of creativity in my eyes. But then, you know, there's Kate, which awesome brand, iconic pieces. I don't know that it was maybe Kate's year. Like I, I was trying to think of what, how Kate stood out. It had some good growth. It had some, I think, retail store openings. I think it reached this point of sophistication in terms of the business. Um, and same for for the row. I mean, they're both kind of known for almost quiet luxury, <laughs> which I don't know is like the most creative thing happening. But um, anyway, those are my thoughts. No, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, I am a fan of Kate. Like, I think the designs are great. Um, I think you're right. That's like, she also just won last year. And I think last year was maybe a little, but a buzzier year maybe for the brand. Um, but I, there was a, an article about her in L the other day that I thought put it really well, which is basically like, she has the trifecta of being critically acclaimed. Like she's loved by uh, like, uh, designers and like fashion, like, like intelligentsia. She's loved by celebrities like Beyonce and stuff. And also like normal people, buy her clothes in in great numbers. They're they're sold out all the time and there's wait lists and stuff. So it's kind of like she she kind of hits all three, you know? Whereas yeah. uh, some designers I think are like, yeah, if you're really into fashion, you know this designer and you think they're great, but they don't really have a mass recognition or, or some other combination. Maybe someone who's very mass, but is like not the most uh, interesting or daring designer. Um, so I think That's that if, so if that- if that's the criteria, then yeah, I think she's a great pick. But I think you're right that if we're thinking more like moving forward, who's like the most exciting voice that's like really pushing the boundaries, then maybe that's not the best pick. But I don't know. I'm, I am a fan of her and, and the brand, though. Yeah, same here. And, and good point. She, her, the respect in, in the industry and, and beyond, it's kind of reminiscent of like Phoebe Philo. Like you can't if you say I'm wearing Kate, like nobody's going to. I don't know, balk or like say, look, Kate, like everybody likes Kate. <laughs> it's unanimous. Yeah. Um, you're so right. Having been somebody who votes, it's interesting to see some people like, um, I would say rally or um, what's the word I'm looking for? They seek out votes in terms of the PR. Like they I like campaign I for themselves. Campaign is the word. Um, but it, I don't get a ton. But every year, like um, Stuart Fevers from Coach, I I get I hear from Coach about what he did this year. Like consider him for the vote. I also hear from um, this year. I did hear from 
Willie Trevaria's team and like kind of recapping his accomplishments this year. I mean, I think it's I think it's smart, like for those who don't do the research and kind of say who's worthy of this um, to just serve it up and, and remind. I think that's great. Yeah, I, I think that's helpful. I mean, it, it happens with every other kind of award show. There's freer consideration for the Oscars and stuff. Um, I also wanted to talk briefly about some of the outfits that were worn to the awards. Particularly, I really liked Anne Hathaway's like jean gown or jown, as I, I was calling it. Jown. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, it was like a floral printed like denim gown. I think it was Ralph Lauren. Um which was a great pick, and and for the CFDA, which is a, specifically about American designers, I thought it was a good kind of gesture to the history of classic American design. And like, you can't go wrong with Ralph Lauren too. So, not that the the red carpet looks are the most important part, but I did want to say I really liked the denim gown. Oh, I love that too. Good point. I mean, um, I know Kim Kardashian wore chrome hearts; it got a lot of attention. Uh, mm-hmm. She presented presented this fashion icon award to Serena Williams, who also looked. Amazing. Yeah. Um, God, those were the standouts. Too. Oh, and Ser- yes. and Serena Williams, we should say, I believe is the first um, athlete to win that award, which is, you know, that she's another great pick. And also I think that's a, a good sort of indication of, you know, sport and fashion coming together, which, you know, has been happening for a long time. It's not novel, but uh, it is interesting that that's the first time an athlete has won that award. So good for her. I agree. There are some interesting, I mean, we can move on, but there are some interesting, <laughs> interesting categories and or winners like it this is an american fashion awards like we have also have an international award with john which jonathan anderson won like okay um i don't know <laughs> and also we had innovation award which goop won which this is a fashion awards i don't necessarily think of goop as a fashion company no. although they do sell fashion um so yeah interesting it, it also is kind of funny to have awards for the the CFDA for American fashion and then just have one category that's just not American fashion. It's like it would it's like if the Oscars had one category that just wasn't movies at all. Just <laughs> just for fun. Um <laughs> but let's let's move on and talk finally about the real real, which we have talked about them on this podcast uh, a bunch. And specifically we've talked about how they have been kind of really pushing toward profitability. They were not profitable for many years for for as long as they've been around. Um, and then I think in the last year, there's been sort of a fire lit under them and they've been really uh, pushing hard to get to profitability next year. Um, they reported some earnings this week uh, that had, I think, a lot of investors feeling very confident or at least a lot more confident than they were earlier this year about their path toward that. I think their their share price went up like 30% in one day after they came out with some of their metrics around like GMV and stuff. Um, I think the main thing for them, it seems like, is uh, cutting the unprofitable categories. They were doing, I think early on, they were doing every category they could think of, any category they could conceivably justify as being worthy of luxury, they would do. So they were doing like home decor and stuff. The thing is, storing and shipping a couch is just, the margin is so much lower than like a tiny piece of jewelry that is, you know, weighs less than a pound, but can sell for several tens of thousands of dollars. Um, it just seems that they've really focused in on those more profitable, higher margin uh, categories. They've done a bunch of other stuff too, which I can talk about. But what were your thoughts on that? Do you, you, do you feel more confident that they can actually do it? it? It's been so long coming for them to get toward profitability. What do you think? Yeah. I, John Coral, named CEO in January, I think, has made some great 
big changes, really impactful in a short time. Um, they also changed their commission structure for sellers. Um, yeah. It was like announced in November, I think. And it basically incentivizes higher cost items. Uh, somebody on Reddit, uh, hopefully it's true. <laughs> and everybody was <laughs> as, was piling on and saying, yes, 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 why? But um, like a $200 dress, the, the commission was formerly $70 and now it's $20. Um, so, you know, you want to sell multi-thousand dollar things is, is the word on the street. Um, and yeah, they're trying some new things for next year to keep it going. Um, on-site advertising, which uh, there's yes. like analysts, there's some questioning out there about like, is that smart? This is a luxury experience. Like, is this going to junk up the site? So anyway, TBD. Yes, I, I had that same thought. And and my my two thoughts on, on the the in-app advertising or on-site advertising is one, yeah, is that going to like devalue the whole experience? Like luxury customers don't want to get pop-up ads and like garbage uh, on the site. And then the other thing I'm like, is that even going to make that much money to to justify it? I think um, not that I've ever run a multi-million dollar company, but to me, it seems like you can only, um, you can only, find a penny here and a penny there so much, you know, it seems like if, if you've got a, a problem with the core of your business, like the, the fundamental nature of your business is just not profitable. I think that no amount of optimizing little bits here and there or squeezing a little bit, a few more pennies here, uh, is going to make up for the fact that just like the, the actual model is just not making more money than it's, than it's, taking to do. Um, that's why I think the cutting the unprofitable categories and focusing on the most profitable ones to me feels like the the like smartest and biggest move because that's like, that's what the whole site is about. So if they could make a little bit of money off of uh, in-app advertising, like third-party advertising, but it's not that much money and it's like might alienate some people or make the experience worse, like I don't know if that's the right move, but they haven't actually launched that yet. Um, I think it's slated for next year. Maybe they change course. Maybe they adjust it. Maybe it comes out and it's not that bad. But I agree with you that I think that sounds a little bit junky. Depends how they do it because we are have been writing more and brands have been investing more in retail media networks. And if they plan to build out a Nordstrom style um, business out of it, great. I mean, publishers, glossy itself. <laughs> we do great on digital advertising. It's a good opportunity that brands see and that we're able to make work. So depends on on the follow through and, and the experience, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I do think, you know, not to harp on it too much, but there's a, a lot of platforms, especially a lot of like online products, whether it's a store or Google, even where the continued effort to get to like squeeze more money out of it makes it a worse experience for the user. Like Google search is impossible to use at this point. It's just, it's gotten so much worse over time. And it's like every new monetizable aspect to it for every additional sponsored result, it's one less real result that the customer is or the user is actually looking for. So I definitely think there's a danger in, in making your whole product worse in the pursuit of, you know, getting a little bit more money out of it. Um, but yeah, they and they also had layoffs and they closed some stores too. So there there are other levers they're pulling to get there. It it just seems like they are much closer to profitability now than I think uh they were. So that's a good sign. Yeah, on track to reach profitability next year, which was the goal, which 
no doubt uh, investors are happy about. And no surprise, like they were talking about watches, fine jewelry, bags, or the things that are selling, uh, ready to wear, not so much. They're kind of known for these on-site promotions. It's everything's always ugh, 20% off, but um, the word was like ready to wear still requires those promotions to sell. I don't know if they're, you know, doing category specific promotions, but that's the word. That's no surprise. Yeah. Um, cool. I think that's all the time we have this week. Uh, Jill, this is so fun doing this podcast with you. Um, so for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this, because that helps us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear we can review episodes every Friday with me and Jill and interviews every Wednesday with industry insiders, usually with Jill, sometimes with me. Um, Jill, who is our next guest on the Glossy Podcast? Uh- Next, we've got Garrett Light, who owns his namesake uh, eyewear company, Garrett Light. Uh, He's the son of Larry Light, who is behind Oliver Peoples, just this awesome eyewear family. He had some awesome things to say, like why now is the right time to start a business. Uh, He started his company during the the Great Recession, and uh, people are looking for newness at that time, and so they gravitate. Either, either be an established brand and do something fabulous now or, or start something new. Well, I will, we'll be looking forward to that. So thank you so much, Jill. And for those of you listening, we'll see you next time. Bye.